I am Tyler, and today we are going to be talking about chapters 45 through whatever the last chapter of The Dragon Reborn is. Uh, joining me are my co-hosts, Bjorn. Hello. And? Jesse. Hi. So this week I am cashing in any points that I have with Jesse and Bjorn, and instead of doing an intro... I am going to try and get away with saying colander as many times as I can. I've given up on trying to stop you. Sounds like I've already won. Does anybody have anything to say before we get started? Bion already complained about the book, but that's okay. I mean, there's some really good chapters in this section. The climax itself kind of leaves me a little cold, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. I like the one where they're with the other wisdom witchy lady. That was my favorite chapter. Well, then you should talk about that because I didn't make that many notes for that. It was my favorite. I think it's because that's the stuff I'm interested in. Yeah. It's random some, world building. Random world building. enjoying that as well. But we'll it's get just, to it. It's, it's nice to see Nanave in her element. And I also enjoy herbalism. In her element? And, you mean like in a cage? No. She won't be caged. None of them will. In a space where she can show off her many skills regarding medicine and herbalism and knowing plants and competing. Well, we'll talk about it. Before we... I guess it's all in the same thing. I'm not going to call it out every time it happens, but yeah, between the, hey, was that Rand around the corner? And... The, hey, did you have that same dream last night? I heard somebody had that same dream. Did you have a weird dream? Like, we get it. Everybody had the weird dream. Only needs to be pointed out once in each city it happens in. I guess. We're talking about chapter 45, Camelin. Uh So Matt and Tom arrive in the city of Camelin, and they split up. Uh, Tom goes to the Queen's Blessing. Which we already remember, right, Bion? It's the place where they stayed at. Amazing. And Matt uh, immediately goes to the palace to deliver the letter. He's like, I said it would be within the hour. It's going to be within the hour. Um, along the way, we get a reinforcement of Matt's Swiss cheese memory. Uh, which, I don't He's know. like, I don't know where this is. Wait, I've been here before. Wait. Well, he talks about like, okay, I can look at this building and I remember the building very well, but I don't remember anything around the building. Like, I don't remember it's... how to get in or away from this building, but I remember it existing. I mean... Is that not normal? For somebody who isn't necessarily locationally focused... um, for example, my memory might be like that. Admittedly, I've had several concussions, and I was never really directionally soundest either. Um, also, um, children tend to have thought patterns like this in their memory where, for how they uh, establish the, the, the long-term directional memory info. So you're well, saying Matt's Matt is idiot. definitely a child. Yeah. So when he arrives at the gates to the palace, he picks the wrong dialogue options and <laughs> gets... Chased away by this dude that looks like a rat. All the wrong words. Yeah. Yeah, he said Tarvalon first instead of Elaine. Which, I mean, would that have even worked if this guy serves the gerbil? Maybe. Yes, also we're calling him gerbil now. 
Gabriel. Gabriel. Nah. <laughs> I mean, people can be nicknamed the gerbil. See? He's Gabriel the gerbil. Look out for him. Gerbil the gerbil. We'll get oh, to the gerbil. We're getting to the gerbil. Uh, so Matt goes back to the inn and is like constantly remarking to people out loud whether or not they should remember him. Uh, which he just comes across like an idiot. But that's our that's, Matt. That's not new. That's what we call baseline behavior. He goes into the library where Tom and Master Gill are. You remember Master Gill? I feel like I have to check now. His See, name makes me think of money. Is that because you played a bunch of a Final Fantasy game? Maybe. Probably. Yeah. His first name is Basil. Basil. Wow. Yes. Uh, so he... with all the with all the stones playing that's happening between Matt and Tom and. Tom and Master Gill. Matt talks about how Tom made him start playing stones versus dice or cards, and he specifies that he's not quite as lucky with cards as dice, which some of the stuff that gets revealed later about how his whole deal works makes a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff where, like, the nuance of his luck is important. Is it because... It's easier to weigh dice than it is to make cards cheat. Well, no, he's, he's not, not cheating, actually he's cheating. Why well, no? But like magic cheating. Well, no, uh, it's not I... even cheating. It's that the entirety of time itself arranged itself in a way to allow him to win at dice. Yeah. But there are logical impossibilities in a deck of cards, while dice only have infinitely improbable outcomes instead of impossible outcomes. Yeah, no, it's not like um, magic is, it's not like he's using magic. It's like, okay, Matt is going to be sitting at this table later, so somebody should spill a little bit of their alcohol, and that should pick up just enough pieces of dust to turn this dice one more rotation so that it lands on the six for him. Is it like within those probability calculations where you can use one probability formula when things are allowed to repeat and one if they're not. You know how in Worm, Contessa has the thing where she doesn't have to rely on chance. She just knows that, mm. like, this is the way it will always work out in her mm -hmm. thing. It's that. It's mm. that there is no... Depending on how random the thing that he's doing is, like, the more random it is, the less chance that he fails. Mm. And so something... That thing is with with cards the cards that other people draw affect the probabilities of the cards you draw but with yes. dice every roll is independent of every other roll also because you can look at your cards as opposed to dice you just throw them and then you don't know the result until it's done and so that is more random than cards and therefore like he is less likely to Basically, the more random the event could be, in the context of gambling, the lower chance that it goes anyway, except the one that is best for Matt. Yeah. So yeah, things aren't physically changing around him while he's getting lucky. It's that fate conspires to have certain things happen. Okay. I'm just seeing it as a really ugly probability equation in my head still. 
Okay. But I understand what you were saying, and I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Except there's no equation. He just wins. He just wins. Yeah. You know that meme where it's suddenly all those numbers around that lady's face? Is that you? That's me right now. Well, try not to think about it. Okay. It's metaphysical, not mathematical. Everything can be mathematical. Whoa. Yeah, so they talk back and forth for a bit, and then Matt decides that he's just going to sneak in and deliver the letter. This seems fine. Because he's a genius. Before he leaves, he thinks, I just have to win once more, and I'm done with Elaine, and that's the last of the White Tower for me. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Turns to camera. Turns back. Like, it's so much. So that brings us to chapter 46, A Message Out of the Shadow. Which is weird, because... Oh, I guess the message from the shadow is Gabriel's message to his assassin. Please. Not Gerbil. Gerbil's message to his assassin, not the message Matt is carrying. But also Correct. there's a book in every chapter, a chapter in every book called A Message Out of the Shadow. Weird. Is there one called The Leave Takings as well? Because I keep noticing that. Yeah. There's a few chapter names that are repeated in every book, like Threads in the Pattern. Uh, what are some other ones? Wow. Do they weave together within the series? Do you think, Within uh, the weave? That's one that happens a lot. Do you think there's an argument to be made that it's like thematic or do you think the argument is he's just so tired how many chapters can you name i guess we'll just keep reusing these generic ones yeah could be in, like in, in fan fiction se- yeah in the second book the chapter where the trollocs write on the walls of faldara was the message out of the shadow great yeah um, trivia trivia hey Just a little tidbit for you. So Matt climbs the same wall to the garden that Rand did back in book one. I had a little comment about this where it was like, Matt said, oh, it's so simple. And my question was, are these boys just secretly the most strong, agile, talented people? They're mountain boys. Yeah, but just because you're a mountain boy doesn't mean you can climb up a wall. They're two riversers. Yeah. Uh, Two riverites? Eamon's Fielders. Yes. Yeah, he has the skills to pay the bills. So Matt is, he gets into the garden, he like picks a flower and puts it behind his ear. What a lad. Yeah. Uh, He's dodging around the guards and then he hears somebody talking about killing Elaine. Yeah, it's two spooky dudes, one of whom is the gerbil and the other one dies during this section. So I didn't write his name down. Mm-hmm. Um, basically the gerbil is like hey go kill Elaine and by the way while you're there kill the other two as well and the guy's like sick I love being evil and gerbil's <laughs> like yeah me too <laughs> I just love committing murder yeah and then Matt gets discovered and delivered by, by Talonvor Talonvor the... infamous cougar chaser infamous lad <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that I mean, he's already a lad in this section. Yeah, so Matt gets taken by Talonfor to where Morgaze is, and he delivers the letter. And hey, the gerbil is there. Turns out the gerbil is the new advisor that everybody's falling themselves over for. 
falling over themselves for. And uh, Morgaze is going goo goo eyes at him. Yeah, She's all like, the stuff with Gabriel and Morgaze is kind of frustrating. I mean, yeah. Because they turn what could be like a strong character into like a simpering sex doll. I mean, a little frustrating because she's also very important and could make plot happen i mean i hate to be that guy but like there you know there's an explanation right well yeah i know there is it's just okay but just because it's an explanation doesn't mean it's a good explanation i mean it's a it's a it's an explanation that makes it work inside the plot it's just frustrating to watch yes i agree it is frustrating to like yeah morgaze could be this force of personality in the plot in her capacity as a queen and then because of like the reasoning because of the reasoning like nobody gets to do anything except for the person who is in charge which is the gerbil yes i mean i wouldn't cross a guy that was confident enough to call himself the gerbil to be fair yeah so I have in my notes that Gabriel is a garbage boy, <laughs> and Morgay's clearly is surprisingly looks... affable about Matt she... sneaking into the palace. She doesn't look like she's in her usual state of mind, mm. and Matt decides to get out while the getting's good. Also, he's Tom Grimwell. Yes, this is Tom. Tom, brother of the pigtail chewer. <laughs> Uh, so that brings us to chapter 47, To Race the Shadow. Talonvor is an absolute lad. Yeah, and he thinks that uh, Morgaze has given Matt a coded message. Yeah. I'm, maybe? I'm not sure. I <laughs> don't think so. I think he's just a good guy. Yeah. He leads Matt out of the palace and scares the rat man that was watching before and turned matt away while they're out away from prying ears talonvor asks matt a few questions about tarvalin and proves himself to be a loyal queen's man which apparently there's a difference between serving morgays and serving the gerbil politics politics exist welcome to the club Yeah, Matt picks up on that fact that there are two different factions and then decides he's going to have to go and get Elaine and Egwene as fast as possible, which, you know. Seems like something a hero would do. He's no bloody hero. Don't know if you've heard. Uh, Matt makes it back to the blessing, relates everything that's happened to Tom and Gil. Uh, Gil informs us that the gerbil has only recently entered the city, but has very quickly... Uh, taking care of a problem that suspiciously lined up with his arrival. Uh, now he's at the top of the political pyramid. Uh, the gerbil has changed a lot about how the city runs in his short time there. And he's bad in a way that everyone can see, but not in a way that anybody can put their finger on to call him out on. Yeah, I mean, everyone's having weird dreams about him. <laughs> yeah, about how sick he is. Uh, Matt and Tom make plans to leave for Tyr after a meal, and I haven't noted that Matt displays his chadliness. I think he says something to the effect of, like, I'm wagering with the gerbil. Yeah, and he I, doesn't I actually know pulled it. it. Okay. Uh, he said, stakes. Gabriel doesn't know it, but he and I have made a wager, and I always win. 
as he rolls six, uh, five sixes on dice. Yeah. But it's also sort of an interesting way to frame the rest of Matt's story in this book. Like how we talked about earlier, where it's possible that Matt only won against Galad and Gawain because he had a bet on it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this has something to do with the rest of his story in the book. Maybe. That he's framing his life in terms of gambling. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's just constantly doing the bet on it from from a high school musical. Wow. I don't even yeah. know that one. No, it's it's a song like "Bet on it." I'll send it to you me. later. It's it's very dramatic. I'm gonna imagine Matt is that now. Great. Yeah, I mean, if Matt knew the rules of his luck, I bet he could exploit it pretty well. Call yeah. me back when he's wandering around uh, Ebodar for three walks. Hmm. You don't even know. <laughs> he's been there half a book where I'm at. Great. So chapter 48, following the craft. Uh, the Wonder Squad arrives in Tyr with both Eggy and Nenev. By the way, my notes completely switched away from ever writing the name Egwene. I don't know that it exists in this whole section. I think it just says Eggy over and over again. So get my fault. Uh, both Eggy and Nenev are happy to be off the ship because they both have the weak stomach. Um, Eggy's been having some dreams. What could they White, mean? White Cloak's putting Perrin's master in a trap. Perrin with a falcon, choosing between axe and hammer. Matt telling her he's on his way. Eleven people moving around Matt, some to help, some to hinder. One of them is Baalzaman, Rand confronting her, meaning Eggy, and the women around her. That's a big fat thinking emoji for me. It's super nice that our prophetic dreams are very literal. Yeah, there's like no layers of... It's so convenient. <laughs> yeah. The squad makes their way into the city, with Nenev finding them the tyrant equivalent of wisdom to hang around with. Yeah, Egwene and Nenev are still being really petty. And they continue to be until they are separated by events in the next book. They don't ever get better. This woman's name is Aluin? Aluin? Aluin. Aluin would be my guess. Um, and she seems pretty chill. Uh, once she and the knave have sized each other up, they secure rooms at her house, and she tells them she's going to go find them a helpful dude to help find their missing women and artifacts. So, Bion, you were saying that there is... You are enjoying this chapter. Do you have any This like, is my thoughts? favorite chapter. I think this is my favorite chapter of everything we've read. Wow. In all three books. Yeah. Wow. So what sticks out to you? Um, I like how they decide to vet each other's medicinary abilities. I enjoy the sass of the uh, other wisdom witchy lady. I like the way the personalities work together and i like seeing the confident and actually proving that confidence rather than just being upset that people aren't immediately respecting her so it's nice to see her actually showing her ability rather than demanding it and then being told that she's good at things at least for myself i really enjoyed that also because um the plant names, I didn't recognize any of them, 
but it was cool to think about the healing within the world, especially when they started talking about the bone mending. Just it, 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 it shows that detail was taken even for something as simple as this, as plants and their herbal usages, but it shows how even in this like literal muddy city, um, how healing and com- the community works with healing and uh, <laughs> how, how, how she solves conflict. It's just yeah. really cool. Yeah, the anecdote about how she solves two women that can't stop bickering. Uh, yeah. How that's something that, like, people take each other to the medic for. Uh, yeah. But it's very, you know, Middle Ages-y. Um, I have a small call-out about a similar thing in the next chapter that we'll get back to yeah elaine is actually killing it in this chapter she elaine is at her best when she is able to just like roll her eyes and point at the two other ones yelling at each other and she, be like she literally slaps a in the face in this chapter because a crosses a line <laughs> i mean would that we could all slap a in the face i mean i don't hate her i i just read her as a kid and maybe I'm just not far enough in the series. Maybe I'm just tend to be more sympathetic towards awful, awful teenage girls. Don't worry. <laughs> You'll understand later. Okay. But yeah, I, I had similar thoughts about this chapter and the next chapter feel like really strong. Tyler sort of skimmed over the description of what the muddy bit, the muddy neighborhood of Tear looks like. And usually I just sort of skim over all that stuff. But for some reason, like, the imagery of the way this neighborhood looks really sticks with me. The fact that people are either barefoot or wearing, like, raised clogs. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. This time, all of this setting stuff actually sticks to me. I think it's perhaps because we've been so stuck where, where with the other point of view with the characters because they were in the tower for a while or they were doing their weird other things and we're just waiting and waiting for them to actually get on with it for what they're going mm-hmm. for also i think it was interesting to hear the people's clothing described between the men and the women the really extreme difference like ladies were covered from neck to ankle versus the guys were just wearing pants mm-hmm. yeah but i mean even in the last section we were in Ilion, which is just as major of a city as Tyr, a major location, but none of the world building about Ilion sticks to me. Well, Perrin also very much doesn't care. I guess. I mean, based on this section in Tyr, I think it's very possible for us to get multiple instances of description about a city from different characters. Mm-hmm. And Matt's is entertaining. And the girls can be really interesting. And Perrin is figuring out puberty. <laughs> wow. Wolf got to grow a beard. <laughs> is the series about anything? Puberty, maybe? Coming of age. We'll get to that. Yeah, so Eloin says the dude I'm going to go find you is sick. He's Julian Sandar. Uh, I definitely was just reading it as Julian. Yeah, like, where are those eyes going? 
I also completely read it as Julian until I listened to the audiobook and neither of them pronounce it as Julian. What if we just called him Jewel? <sighs> Julie. Like, like the pod? <laughs> <laughs> jewel, like, where's my jewel? Yeah, that's what I mean. I need to vape some fat clouds. Julian would vape <laughs> some fat clouds. He absolutely would. Yeah. But but yes, Julian absolutely would vape along with his stupid fez he picks up later. Yeah. Do you think Julian would turn his bamboo staff into a huge long vape? <laughs> I think he would have to combine it with his conical hat. God, everybody hates the conical hat. And yes, it's a fess. Uh, he doesn't have it yet. He doesn't have it yet. Well, so, so he, he's gonna be a reoccurring character. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, he, oh yeah. I've been watching a lot of Letterkenny, so there's a lot of Canadian accent going through my head. Um, so as soon as Aylwin is out of the room, the squad discusses where they're at, sort of in their plan situation. The squad says, hey, if it sucks that we have to manipulate people, but I guess we have to. They're very good Ace Sedai. And that's when Elaine slaps Egwene, because Egwene implies that the knave is turning into Moraine. Hmm. I mean, it's always a good day to slap Egwene. Uh, chapter 49, A Storm in Tear. Uh, so Julian shows up. He's got a staff made of bamboo. Uh, he's a quick-thinking dude, and he's as nice as he can be about prize, uh, prices. Excuse me. Yeah. And uh, he says that he's been seeing people up on the rooftops, which yeah. it sort of does double duty because it seeds the fact that the Aiel are here, and it also marks Julian, Julian as being competent because people aren't supposed to be able to see Aiel that are trying to hide. Yeah. Yeah, he's good at his job. And good eyeball man. I'm giving Bjorn a look. An eyeball look? With his eyeballs. I'm giving you a look now, too. Uh, so, just a quick note in here. I love the way that Jordan does, like, weird turns of phrases across different geographic areas. Not like the tier ones, where it's like, hey, fish exist. But um, Julian says in here, because he's talking about people... When he talks about people on the rooftops, he says that he's so sure you can buy your dinner with that, which is like a weird way to phrase the idea that he's sure enough that you can bet on it. Mm -hmm. But it works for me in that it means the same thing and it comes across as like a weird thing that would just show up in the lexicon for this specific area. Yeah, a lot of fantasy authors have issues making believable idioms, but... Mm -hmm. Jordans are very natural feeling for the most part, except for blood and bloody ashes. Yeah. Which I would suppose might make sense for Britishisms, because they use bloody all the time. Yeah. So Brandon Sanderson, that's one thing he's not good at, is <laughs> natural sounding idioms and swears. Well, sucks to be him. They relate all of the info about the 13 to Julin, and he memorizes them immediately, and then says, yeah, I'll find him quietly, don't even worry about it. They won't even know him there. There's sort of a fun moment where Nanave is trying to enforce to Julin how dangerous these women are. 
and he talks about how he got stabbed once by a woman, and he says, I don't make that mistake anymore, but I'll behave as if these women are all Aes Sedai and Black Aja, and then you get, like, a funny reaction from Egwene, but it makes sense that a tyrant would think of Aes Sedai and Black Aja as their example of dangerous women, mm-hmm. because tyrants hate Aes Sedai. So it's, like, logically consistent, but it it's still, like is a way to get a rise out of your characters in a fun way that doesn't cheat at all. There's just a lot of good stuff in this chapter. These You're chapters. There's good writing. No, as I, I said, else? these few these couple chapters feel really strong. Like the world building is sticking with me and the characters are feeling dynamic. I didn't hate it and I didn't feel the need to spark noted afterwards. Yeah, for real. I definitely felt like these chapters were strong. Well cool. Um Hopefully we'll continue to have strong chapters in this section. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Elbows be on as they look like they're going to die. I'm going to emulate you. Nice. Uh, so after everybody goes to bed, uh, Iggy goes to Tarantula and sees Missandry and the other black sisters in the heart of the stone waiting for her. What did you say her name was? Missandry. Oh, Yeah. Thought you were making a Game of Thrones reference. No, I don't know. Misandry isn't real. <laughs> you made a comment about the Misandry thing when she was a primary character in the last book. She's more like a misanthrope. I just re-listened to that episode to double check if I had already made a specific joke. Did I really call her Misandry? Or did I call her, is is the red Aja, black Aja, a parody of radical feminism? Yeah, no, you called her out for not having women's solidarity. That's misogyny, yeah. not misandry. Yeah, I know, that's the thing. I'm saying, she's a misanthrope. She hates people. She sucks. Do you not know the difference between misogyny and misandry? I do, but Do it's... they just scare you because they're social justice words? Does it make your gamer rise up? <laughs> that has to be cut you can't say that on air <laughs> that means something else anyways anyways do you want me to re-record that sentence and say misogyny instead would that make you happy yes okay or just say lit if you can say her name Leand- leandrin no, Lanfear. You were Fuck. right the first time. You were right the first time. There's too many names. Leandrin. We're like three books in. I'm already nicknaming. I was nicknaming them in the first book. There are 2,700 named characters in this series. Side character number 57. We haven't been keeping track, but it very well may be. Anyways... Anyways. I'm not cutting that, by the way, so there's no reason to re-record. Great. Awakening. Uh, so, Egwene wakes up, and she informs the rest of the squad that they're, the Black Sisters are waiting for them, and that they know the squad is in Tyr. Uh, we cut to Matt, who has just arrived in Tyr with Tom. There's a fun bit where... Tom says that Matt could be a good good stones player if he put his mind to it. Or maybe hmm. if he put some other people's minds to it. Hmm. That's a spoiler. <laughs> but you're not wrong. 
Do the representative image of the boys for the chapter titles change? No. I think some of them have, like, alternates. Rand has, like, a few. Yeah. Yeah, I think most of the boys have, like, two or three that could work for them. But no, when it's, like... Um, when it's the dice, it's definitely Matt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no cross-pollination of, like, you see a wolf header and it's about Rand. Yeah. Matt could... Exactly. If only Matt had some more experience experience with strategic thinking uh so nanave had felt a storm coming on it is now that storm and matt is very protective of his fireworks yeah like matt can barely see but he is protective of the fireworks he still insists on going he's like we're gonna go find an inn we're gonna drop our stuff and then we're going out looking tom's like you're dumb Matt's like yeah but i'm gonna do it anyway i said i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it yeah there's a montage of them not finding anything including not finding the house that the squad is actually in yeah and it's funny they talk about how matt starts from their inn and then works his way outwards and that's why he isn't able to find them is because he's using a logical system to look yeah Uh, i think in the following few days he like actually starts to just do it randomly Uh uh-huh but yeah, while they're out looking, he sees somebody that might be Rand, and uh, he eventually arrives at a place called the White Crescent. Ding! Matt and Tom find the guy who was sent to kill the squad, because randomness. Uh, he's been cheating at dice well enough that nobody catches him until Matt and Tom. They're like, hey, let's talk. So... This is like a fun scene, even if it's a little contrived that this assassin is just hanging around playing dice mm-hmm. and like being very public. But yeah. Matt gets to do some fun stuff. Yeah, it's nice that Matt gets to go and be a smarmy gambler and Tom gets to be like, hey, I can do sleight of hand. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but he does that a lot. Yeah, so Matt challenges the guy to dice, beats him, and then... Beats him. Kills him? (laughs) Yeah. Casual violence is continuing. Yeah. Um, So Matt figures out, at this point, how to use his luck stat, which, like you mentioned, is just randomly decide which ins to go into or not. Like, flip coins, which way to go. And then he spends the next three days making literally no progress. Good stuff, my guy. It's because he's looking in the wrong places. Chapter 50, The Hammer. Perrin and co. arrive in Tyr. They take rooms at the Star. Ding. And after a brief argument in the group, Perrin makes his way to the adjacent smithy. Uh, The argument uh, is... Yeah. uh, Moraine says, Tyr can be a dangerous city for those who do not know its ways. The pattern can be torn here. Which, I just have a question mark. I don't know what she means. I assume she means that in the sense of, like... There's prophecy about to happen, not that it's, like, something inherent about the place. uh, I was going to go one step further and say what she means is the pattern that, like, they need to make by having everybody involved not be dead can be torn here. Because, like, weird stuff happens in Tyr. 
All right. Why you got to say it like that, Moraine? Because she's... Be more clear. <laughs> more rain. More like more clear. I think Tears had enough rain. Am I right? I'm going to eat your other Girl Scout cookies. I wish that you wouldn't. I bought those. <sighs> anyway. So everybody goes their separate ways. But uh, Perrin, Loyal, and Fail are told to stay near the group. Or stay near the uh, inn. So Perrin makes his way to the adjacent building, which is a smithy. The only person working there is the head blacksmith. And Perrin quickly steps up to assist without uh, they speak almost no words back and forth. Yeah, it's very sour of hardworking men. Yeah. Yeah, just Uh, like he looks up, gives him a manly nod, gives him another manly nod, and then they're working. Yeah. Uh, after a bit, he's given his own metal to work with and proves himself. He, like, makes an accoutrement for the thing that the main guy is making, which is kind of a kiss-up move, but I'll allow it. <laughs> they work through the whole day, and when Perrin looks up, it's nighttime, and Fail is there watching him. She's always watching him. He is given a hammer, because... The smith is like, you do good work, I. if you don't want to be paid, then take the hammer, and maybe you can be a smith again someday. And I cry. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff here. Like, it's a pretty simple scene, but just knowing what we know about Perrin is enough to make it feel really important. Mm-hmm. And it was a really lovely scene. Yeah, he gets a nice moment. I just want him to be a happy blacksmith boy. And that's what he wants to be, too. And that's the point of the scene. But also, when he gets a little bit of time with Fael, and she's like, so you really are a blacksmith, blacksmith. And they get a little bit of chemistry time just to make sure that the romance is believable before Perrin does some epic romance rescuing later. Yeah, before he, like, before you are required to believe that the romance is real. Yeah. They have to, like, very quickly establish it. Yeah. I mean, they had chemistry before, but, like, we needed, like, a couple more scenes of them, like, being a little more intimate. As in, like, showing her that he's really passionate about being a blacksmith. Yeah. I just want him to be happy. Yeah, it's a nice scene. I don't, I didn't particularly care for the interactions between them. Maybe I'll like it more as they continue. Hopefully. No, this is about as good as it gets. Whoa! You don't like the parts in book four with them interacting? Not in the slightest. (laughs) Maybe just because I'm seeing these people as kids that I just don't like the shipping. Of course, I've, I've read fanfiction shipping of things, though, so I don't know. We can introspectively examine later. I'm just not feeling this ship. Well, hopefully you will. Uh, so back in his room, Perrin considers the yeah. hammer versus Perrin the axe. Perrin literalizes the metaphor, which I don't yeah. think we needed. Do you get it? Do you, do you get it? Uh, and then he's called down to a meeting of the group. Uh, Moraine has discovered that the one of the High Lords, the new one, that that uh, Tyran boat captain from before was talking about, is Bilal, who is one of the Forsaken. I had totally forgotten that this Forsaken was in this book, because he goes down like a chump. I had forgotten his name because he goes down like a chump. 
He exists for like three pages. She insists that Balefire will kill him as well as it does everything else. And as long as they sneak up on him, they'll be fine. Big snake. It's There's no snakes involved. With there's that. no snakes. There are no snakes. There actually aren't. No. They've all, there are just no snakes. It wasn't prophesized for their explicitly, people. so there, there are no snakes. I still... I, now I feel like you're referencing something different from what I thought you were. I don't even know what I'm referencing anymore. Okay. Uh, we get some more exposition and confirmation that the Aiel are in tier, in case you didn't pick up on it. It's one of their prophecies that the Aiel will be there when the stone falls, and that they will... Uh, that will hit them leaving the waste, which Moraine didn't know that prophecy, so that's just an Aiel one. After the gang splits up to look for clues... Uh, parent says he's going to think about the hammer. My glasses. My glasses. Uh, and then in this moment is when he switches over from thinking about Zareen as Zareen and starts thinking about her as Fayil. Do you get it? I get it. Birds. Uh, so chapter 50. Oh, she's a falcon. Uh, chapter 51, bait for the net. Uh, Call Calls. <laughs> Someone's stepping on her brand. Uh, Neneve is being herself at <laughs> people, and she runs into Julian on her way back to the house. Uh, he's very insistent and nervous. He's like, wow, those women you told me to find sure were dangerous. But anyway, they didn't catch me. But also, you need to be at the house right now uh, so that he can tell her what he's found. So they arrive at the place, and Nave immediately figures out that the Black Sisters are here and begins to fight back, even shielded. She just, like, starts punching people. Yeah, it's very satisfying. It's really great. It's good to know that she can be practical, even within all that anger. Like, it's, 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 it's not just magic, oh no, and then she's done. It's like, no, I'm going to punch you and solve the problem. Yeah. Her anger isn't just a function of trying to channel. If she's angry and can't channel, she'll still be angry. Yes, she, yes. She was angry long before she could channel. Well, even still, she gets taken and the squad is put into a carriage to go to the stone. They also mention in here that Egwene was screaming about being caged <laughs> before they put her out. So they had to beat her before they caged her. Yeah. Uh, so she and Elaine try and trick the sisters into thinking that this is all <laughs> part of their plan. Oh my god. In like the worst no, it's, don't it, tell them that. They mustn't yeah. know. Elaine, you are not supposed to speak of that. They have to take us into the stone as bait. And Elaine's like, as bait, that thing that I'm not supposed to say in front of them? In the stone? Like, oh my god. It's very not convincing. Were you convinced, Bill? <laughs> no. And Leandrin's just like, uh-huh, yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. She's like, that's great. You can tell that story to those 13 Merdral we're bringing. And they're like, oh, no. Not the Merdral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how they go. They're like, oh, no. Not the Merdral. I hate it. Um, and then uh, Nanave starts screaming, which is great. Uh, so chapter 52, In Search of Remedy. Capital R, Remedy. So Tom was out in the rain, and so now he has the anime cold where he's going to die from it. Yeah, and Matt's uh, very tsundere about it. 
Yeah, it's actually probably because Tom's like 100 years old or something. It's like, if the old goat dies on me, who will I play stones with? And then he literally like carries him on his back to find help. Yeah. Not a hero. Uh, well, not a bloody hero. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Matt's like, we got to find somebody. Sure would be a nice little coincidence if the lady that he got sent to was the same one where the squad just got taken from. Tavarin. Some might say it's lucky. There is one medic for the mud people. Well, he says there's like three. It just so happened that it was this one. <laughs> They're not like mud people. They just live in the muddy part of the city. Yeah, so Matt eventually gets the info out of her that the squad is being held by the High Lord and some Aes Sedai in the stone. And he just has to get them out. <laughs> Matt is a Chad. Continuing with Matt's trend to talk about the physical attractiveness of every woman ever, he's like, oh, wait, she's not fat. She's strong. (laughs) He's just a weirdo. He's like, I bet she could break me over her knee and I'm super into it. (laughs) God. I'm doing this for this and this for this and the kiss. Yeah. The kiss is just for me. Wink. She's like. Go die out there. <laughs> yeah, he flirts with her at the end to make her mad. Yeah. Uh, which mood. Uh, so leaving Tom behind, which, by the way, I love that Tom is, like, dying on the couch. He's like, no, I can come with you. And that's like, you're dumb. Enjoy this lady. When Matt goes out, he can feel the dice tumbling in his head. Hmm. What does that mean? What could that possibly be? Jesse. Yes. What could that mean? His head is I don't know what this prophesized dream could possibly mean. What could it be referring to? I know what it means. Jesse knows what it means. Then who's driving the bus? Who's driving the van? Uh, So chapter 53, A Flow of the Spirit. And this is where the strong chapters kind of stop for me. I don't know. I like, I think I like the second to last one. (laughs) Where Rand decides to make some more proclamations. Where like all of the things that we've been waiting for the entire book actually happen all at once. Like, are you happy now? Because pacing is hard. Don't think about pacing, just think about building up events for 53 chapters and then paying them off in the last two. Unsatisfying. Mm. Uh, So in the previous few days, Perrin has continued to work at the smithy next door with Fail watching him. Um, He's almost calling her Fail out loud. And she suggests he grows a beard. Yeah. Uh, he also, Is that a way of proposal in her culture? No. She just likes bearded men. She's just like, I think you'd be hotter if you had a beard. Ew. <laughs> What's the matter? I just don't find that aesthetic attractive. Oh, okay. I thought you meant like, conceptually, it was you to be like, I think you'd be hotter if you did this to somebody who you know is going to do it for you. <laughs> oh, well, you know I'll do it to you. I know you have done it to me. <laughs> and you do it to yourself. That's true. You do it to yourself more than I do it to you. Probably. Anyways. Anyways. So Perrin is also thinking about the prophecy from men about avoiding a beautiful woman. 
and he is not sure if that was about Lanfear or Fael, which is a lot because Lanfear is literally never described as anything except the most beautiful person that the point of view character has ever seen. So like it's also cute because no one else describes Fael like that in their point of view later. No. She is like constantly talked about as not being Yeah, being kind of weird looking. Yeah, she's not especially attractive to anybody except Perrin. Cute. Because she's ready to fight you. No. <laughs> and it's, everything? It's because she's Saldean and has a very strong nose. I think Saldean is like Mongolia? I don't know. So she's just very ethnic yes. looking. And that's not kosher with anyone except Baron, apparently. Interesting. Uh, Wolves so don't two... discriminate. <laughs> well, Unless okay. you smell bad. Uh, so they head back to the inn, and Lan and Moraine tell the pair that they'll be leaving, uh, meaning Perrin and Fael will be leaving, with Loyal in tow, back to Tarvalin. And Lan and Moraine are going to go kill Bilal. Don't even trip. Easy peasy. Yeah. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Uh, Fael rushes upstairs to get her things together, and triggers a Turangriel trap that puts her in Tarantula with no way out. No way out. No way out. Are you saying she's been caged? It's time for uh, these dreams to be important. Yeah. Uh, Moraine cautions that Perrin would be an idiot to follow. And then she leaves the room. <laughs> <laughs> and Perrin's like, hey, Loyal, will you guard my body? And Loyal's like, yeah, dog. Wait, your body? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? It's just interesting how, how he describes how Ogiers are described as being something that nobody wants to be the enemy of. And he's yeah. he's just like, yep, this is my man. Yeah, He's going to protect me. Yeah, I think I mean, Loyal, Loyal says, says something. he would fight the Dark One himself to protect him, essentially. Yeah, I think the line is like, no one, not even the Dark One, will cross while I live. And parents are like, I see why people don't want to fight Ogier. Also because Ogier are like... 12 feet tall or something. Very old and very big. Yeah. So Perrin throws himself at the hedgehog and the hedgehog does not gotta go fast. Is the hedgehog symbolic? I was trying to think of things that hedgehogs are symbolic of. No, I think it's just a weird Tarangriel. Maybe it's part of the idea that it's like a trap. That it's like sprung by hedgehogs getting close to like it. Hedgehogs are like a trap. You think you're going to get all that delicious hedgehog meat and then they roll into a ball <laughs> and they're spiky. I don't. Then they explode um, into a bunch of rings. Um, yeah. No. Hedgehogs, listen, if you set it lightly in your hand, then you just. Anyways. I made a hand motion and Bia looks like I'm a monster. <laughs> um, anyway. So they're in the dream. Hopper is there, and Perrin says, uh, "And Perrin's like, here too strongly." Yeah, you're here too strongly, young bull. Perrin's like, "If I don't get Fael back, I don't care." I'm the protagonist, and this is book three. I'm fine. I'm the protagonist of this book. I don't care. Uh, he becomes a wolf, and they go to hunt. Chapter fifty-four into the stone. Congrats, the book now has events that are happening continuously. Matt's about to pull a pro-gamer move. 
I'm about to do what's called a pro gamer move. Uh, he's running across rooftops, practicing his Assassin's Creed skills, and is carrying a tin box full of fireworks and a hot coal. That seems safe. Well, the well, coal's in a bunch of sand. Yeah. Yeah, it's like two separate areas. Um, he's heading to the stone and thinks about climbing the wall to get in. And then he's like, I could never do that. You'd have to be dumb. Wait, is somebody doing that? <laughs> I'm going to do it. He says, but when was I ever sensible? The only people I ever met who were sensible all the time were so boring that watching them could put you to sleep. And like, good stuff, Matt. Don't think with your head. Think with the dice. Think with your fireworks. Mm-hmm. Now you're thinking with fireworks. He really is. Although he's also really not, in a way. Uh, so on one of the rooftops, Matt is attacked and fights back pretty well, but is overwhelmed by what is revealed to be a massive group of Aiel. There's got to be like 20 on this roof. A flock of gingers. A flock of Aiel gingers. And there's some familiar names. Yeah, Ruark and Bane and Chiat are here. And Gaul. Gaul's the reason they know to come here. Hmm. So after Matt is allowed up, uh, Julin also arrives. And Julin's like, I could take you all with one fez tied <laughs> on top of my head. And then like, ten more Aiel stand up. And he's like, I couldn't take any of you. Even with my fez. Even with the fez. I did a bad thing. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, struggling with some guilt. Yeah. Um, Everybody agrees that they have to get into the stone, but the Aiel don't want to go with Matt. And they all agree that nobody's going to rat anybody out to the guards, and so they're all just allowed to go on their merry way. There is a little quip that Matt makes in here, uh, because I think one of the Aiel asks him, like, Hey, are you going to go get help if we let you go? And are you going to reveal that we're here? And Matt's like, I don't even know who I would reveal you to. There's nobody on the rooftops tonight. As he's like looking around at the group of Aiel. Uh, it says that he says it with like dry humor, which I just thought was really funny. It said it was humorous, so I laughed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Don't say it like that. That's not how I meant it. The author instructed me to feel this sensation. Uh, Matt and Julin come up with a plan to get into the stone, and Matt says he just wants to stir the anthill a little first. (laughs) So, he goes up to the stone, to an arrow slit on the stone, and just shoves all the fireworks into it. (laughs) And then, uh, sets them all off at once. And Matt has just invented explosives. This isn't quite as implausible as I remembered it. I remembered it being like he blows a massive hole in the side of the place, but it's really just, it's a loud bang, and then the arrow slit is just big enough for a person to get through. Yeah. Like, the way I I remembered it was like a massive explosion that, like, ripped the palace apart or something. That is also what I remembered. It's probably because, like, everyone is now on alert because, yeah. excuse me, what was that? But, like... It was just a loud noise, not like... A earth-shaking explosion. Zero subtle. Yeah. But that was the point. So, Matt climbs inside and starts to fight the defenders of the stone. And he's about to get overwhelmed when Julin joins him. Uh, Between the two of them, 
they take this group of defenders down, and then they begin making their way through the guards and down to the cells. Very cinema buddy cop. Yeah, no, this whole like last couple chapters of action is very cinematic as we keep cutting back and forth between all of these characters trying to get through this fortress. Uh, we cut for just long enough to know that Rand is also here. And, and he's then, laughing. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut to Egwene, who wakes up in her cell with Neneve and Elaine. They all catch each other up on the events. Um, they're still blocked from the uh, power, and the Merdral are still on the way, presumably. All this stuff with the Wonder Squad in this book establishes something that will happen in like the climaxes and the big important magic moments going forward like the stuff where big magic was happening before has never been explained like it's been like at the end of this book so it's worth what do you mean so we get a lot of talk about the nuances of being shielded like what flows people are doing climaxes taking place inside tarantula uh, mm. There's like a lot of hallmarks of some of the later stuff that gets established in their storyline in this book. Yeah, that's a good point. Because up until now, I know I have talked about like threads and weaving. But like, yeah, this is one of the first times where because now they are all aware of what's going on and able to perceive it. We are now getting that information that like this is how it all works. Yeah, like we got stuff about. Egwene learning to tie off weaves and what works in Teleran Riyadh and what doesn't and when someone can be shielded and when they can't. There's a lot of stuff mm. like that in this that gets used a lot later. Yeah, and the nuances of... Yeah, there's all sorts of information and we will continue to get more, especially now that, like I said, they're aware of what's going on. And yes, Egwene discovers that they didn't take the stone ring from her and so she falls asleep and enters Tarantula. Um, she finds one of the sisters, the one that's sitting outside the door to their cell, um, and shields, restrains, and assaults her. Uh, no, I'm so sorry. It's the other way. She's in the heart of the stone, and she finds one of the sisters and tells all this to her. And then um, she leaves after removing the assault and basically just leaves the sister like shielded and locked in Tarantula in that spot. And then she makes her way down to the cells to find out how to free Elaine and Nave. We cut back to Perrin. Uh, he and Hopper are um, working their way through all these people in Tarantula who... Jesse, this might be a minor spoiler, but I'm curious your thoughts. Are these, like, guards that were inserted into Tarantula, or are these, like, constructs? Because we know from the next book that it is possible to, like, construct a person that exists only in Tarantula. I have no clue. <laughs> okay. I'm assuming that it's that one. Weird magic people. Yeah, because, like, later on, somebody shows that they can do that. They, like, create uh, people that exist just to carry out one order and then disappear. So, anyway, Perrin finds Fail. Uh He almost has her free when she fades away and... They call each the other by name. Yeah, the hunt continues. Cutting back to Matt, he is having a conversation with Julian as he faces down a High Lord. He's like pretty casual about it. Matt finally wins and he's all tuckered out. And then Julian develops some class consciousness 
talking about like, well, he doesn't look so different from me, even though he's a high lord. Uh, so they make their way down to the cells as Matt's luck holds, because I guess he's just constantly lucky. I don't remember why I made that note. His brain is still dice. It's okay. This is like four hours into my note taking. Uh, chapter 55. What is written in prophecy? Uh, so this is similar to at the end of the second book, when we finally get a chapter marker that is the Horn of Valir. This chapter marker is Rand's, and it has been the entire book, and it makes me so hyped. We get a whole Rand chapter. What a treat. Who'd have thunk it was even possible in this year of our Lord, 2020? Uh, so Rand is in the heart now. He can see Kalandor hanging in the air, waiting, and Bilal steps out to meet him. The Forsaken is like, you should take Kalandor, and Rand's like, no, you. Just because you said it. No. Yeah, well, now I am not going to do that. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, Rand refuses to take Kalandor, and instead they both create Blades of Fire and begin to fight, and it's clear that they are both Blade Masters, but Bilal is better. So Rand is on the ropes when Moraine just walks into the scene and Balefire's Bilal. Yeah. Literal three pages of screen time for one of the Forsaken of the Lord of the Dark. Yeah. Does Balefire completely delete someone's thread? I mean, you'll find out in the next book. Tune in for next book so I mean, you two can learn. The answer is yes and more. Yeah. Yes and. Exactly. Okay. But yes, when Moraine says, like, you get bail fired and you're done, she is totally correct. You don't defend against bail fire, you just... Except Rand does it later. Don't worry about that. Avada he does that in this chapter. Well, they're in Tarantula, so stuff's different. But yes, like, you get hit with bail fire and you no longer exist. But why wouldn't them being a Terran... Tarantula not not kill him because isn't it kind of because Tarantula has weird rules. But if you, I okay. thought it was if you, if you, if you die in it, you. I'm die literally in life. like trying not to spoil the last book. Okay, I'm just saying like <laughs> the whole Tarantula rules. is not that much easier to say than Teleran Riyadh. No, is it annoying you? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, Teleran Riyadh has weird rules about everything, and you kind of just have to accept that I'm right because otherwise. You are asking for a spoiler from the climax of the last book about, like, a description of why some stuff works and some stuff doesn't. Why is this series so long? <sighs> because there's a bunch of books in the middle that don't matter. <laughs> what if you just said it in less words? Maybe we can just summarize. Wait, we are summarizing. <laughs> Way ahead of you. I mean, how long is the audiobook of this book? I didn't check for this book. I know that uh, book five was 36 hours. Insufferable. Book four was 41. So our podcast is definitely shorter than that. Yeah. What See, else could you do in 41 hours? A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. You can listen to it at work, though, which makes it real convenient for me. Oh. <laughs> oh my god, you look... I don't know if I've ever seen disgust written so clearly on yeah, your I'm face. Yeah, I'm not listening to that. Yeah. Well, I've, li mean, I've listened to, to 80 hours of audiobook in the last two months. It's a lot. You look so upset. I just don't enjoy audiobooks very much as an individual. Neither do I, but it's the only way to read a work. Uh, 
So Moraine urges Rand to take the colander, and she is suddenly thrown aside, with Baal Saman appearing from the shadows. Um, he says he is done giving Luz Theron chances to serve him, and he attempts to kill Rand. Uh, Rand, like, turns around, grabs the colander, and pulls in the power until he has enough to fight back. And then suddenly we're warping around and the power has spiked. Yeah, Balzaman teleports physically into Tarantula and Rand follows him instinctually. Magic zoomies. He says, I am the hunter now. Which, like, is still going kind of crazy. <laughs> we get some talk of bending reality. Like, this is pretty far beyond what we've been doing before. Well, reality is mutable in Tarantula. Uh, so we cut to Egwene, who is still in Teleran Riyadh. She's making her way to the dungeons, and upon arrival, their guard is drifting off to sleep. So Egwene, like, does the video game thing of waiting for the pattern on the trap, and then catches her, shielding her and holding her partially in Teleran Riyadh. You're that ninja. Hey, you're that ninja. Uh, she wakes to find... <clears throat> so... Her hope is like, hey, I'm partially holding her there. I cut her off from the source. If I wake up, we should be good to go. Uh, she wakes up. She's not good to go. And she goes back in for another round to figure this out, with Nenev having to sing her to sleep. Oh. Uh, I also need a better way to format my notes, because there is something in here that I wanted to call out, but it's at the start of Igwin's little uh, section here. So there is a moment where the text says, the stone shook, and then it says, the stone shook and it rang, but the first stone is lowercase and the second one is capitalized, and I absolutely love that. That, like, it's proper nouning on you to let you know that both the ground is shaking and then on a meta level, like, the entire uh, palace is, like, shaking and ringing with everything that's going on. Good cut. Maybe. Thank you. Good job, honey. Uh, so we cut to Matt and Julin, who are just now reaching the for real dungeons. Um, they get inside and find an Ace Sedai outside of a cell who can't move. Matt goes to help her, and then... He, he doesn't. He's like, why can't this Ace Sedai move? That's weird. And then just, like, slowly pulls the key off of her and just leaves her sitting there. His first instinct is to help her. Yeah. She's a woman. Yeah, that's what I remembered. I was like, Matt, no. He's just trying to be a good boy. Uh, so Matt gets the door open and the knave clocks the Ace Sedai, which is pretty great, uh, which allows them to channel again. I also like the note in here that, like, because the Ace Sedai is held with bonds of air, when she falls over out of the chair after getting punched, she is still in the same position as though she was just sitting there. So Matt protests to them punching a woman that can't fight back. And the women are just filled with gratitude. Yeah, this like, is a bad look. They, yeah. they all in sync turn around, wrap him in air, and start strangling him. And say, you don't understand anything, Matram Coffin. Until you do understand, I suggest you keep your opinions to yourself. And, like, they're all collaboratively suffocating him with magic because he told them something they didn't like after he yeah. saved them. And yeah. 
Didn't they say something about not expecting Matt to save them? Yeah, they specifically called out multiple times earlier in the book, like, it sucks when men offer to help you because they don't help you when you need it. They help you after you have enough time to get out of the situation, ask them for help, and then they show up. And, like, Matt does that, and their response is, don't talk to us. We're now suffocating you. Yeah. Matt refers to this moment many times going forward as why he never wants to talk to any of them again. Yeah. Which is reasonable on him. Fair. Very fair. Like for at least the next three books, he repeatedly refers to this moment as like the moment he like stopped thinking of them as friends. Which, I mean, I don't know. Were they even friends? He was at least friends with Egwene and Nanaeve. And he thinks Elaine's hot. So, like, that's pretty much the same thing. But yeah, this is a horrible look for them. Yeah. Uh, So the girls stalk off to go and find the rest of the Black Sisters. And Matt is calling after them, like, well, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to come help you. And they don't respond. And so Matt turns to Julian and says, why didn't you say something? He growled at the thief catcher. I saw what speaking earned you, Sandar said simply. I'm no fool. Which, like... Laughs uh, in the next three books. Yeah. Also, he's already on thin ice with all of them, so... Yeah. Because don't they want to attack him? I mean, he is the reason that they got caught. Yeah. Because he decided to be loyal. And the only one that should be loyal is loyal. Uh, So we cut to Perrin, who is still trying to find Fayil. He... Just to, I didn't put it in my notes, but I think it is cool to reinforce that the wolf dream is Teleran Riyadh is where Rand is by denoting that when Perrin breaks open this door and makes the loud gonging noise, uh, Rand also hears it later. So Perrin can feel that he is going to die soon from being in the dream too strongly, but he presses on and he gets into this final chamber where Fayil is like an actual in- bird. Yeah, she's like an actual falcon across the room, surrounded by a ring of light, and everything else is dark. And so Perrin starts to make his way forward and gets swarmed by falcons that are tearing at him. He finally makes it to Fayil in the center, and he just like grabs the chain with the hedgehog on it and tears it apart with his bare hands. And then uh, he collapses, and then it says, My poor Perrin... She said softly, my poor blacksmith, you are hurt so badly. With an effort that cost more pain, he turned his head. This was the private dining room in the star, and near one leg of the table lay a wooden carving of a hedgehog, broken in half. Fayil, he whispered to her, my falcon. Earned, question mark? I mean, I don't know if, like that level of it is earned but i'm a sap for that kind of thing so it totally worked on me yeah not for me (laughs) i kind of figured i mean beyond doesn't have a romantic bone in their body i was zero impressed also does this mean spiritually like fail is a falcon and uh blacksmith boy is a wolf if you wanted to get sorry go on and so all the other people will also have their various soul versions of themselves. So that is not if what you this rem- means. If you remember, when people go into Teleran Riyadh, mm-hmm. um, their subconscious thoughts affect, like, usually it's just what they're wearing because it's the uh, women. 
mm-hmm. and uh, all women care about is clothing. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. You're doing a real service here. There's a lot of talk uh, about plunging necklines versus good and, two rivers woolens. Yeah. Yeah. And showing ankle and how sheer something is. Anyway, so that's what it usually is. But when Perrin is thinking about it's time to hunt, he subconsciously becomes a wolf. And like when he showed up, he was a blacksmith, but then he becomes the wolf to hunt with Hopper. And my read on this is like, he is thinking so hard about Fahil as Fahil being a falcon and being his falcon that like he literally makes her a falcon. If you're strong enough in Teleran Riyadh, your thoughts can affect other people. Yeah, like, you can start to project it outwards at others. And so, like, like if Egwene and the Knave were both there, one of them could apply and affect the clothing of the other, or so on and so forth. Like, Teleran Riyadh is, like, the better you are at lucid dreaming, the better you are at Teleran Riyadh. Mm. And so, it's just that. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. What? Notebook. The the notebook. Okay. Romantic movie. You sound really into it. I don't like it, but you probably would. Great. Uh, so Rand, we cut to him. He is now physically in Tarantula with Balsamon, uh, trying to locate his prey. Balefire is shot at him, but like you said, Jesse, he does some sick anime moves with Kalendor and splits it around himself. Yeah, this definitely doesn't feel like the third book of a 14-book series. <laughs> Whatever could you mean? <laughs> I have a feeling but, this was like the planned halfway point of the series. Yeah. So is the reason that he can do that is because Kalendor is a magical sword? Yes. No, it's because, what? I mean, it, yeah. like, Rand thinks that Kalendor is super magical, and they're in Teleran Riyadh, so now Kalendor is super magical. I mean, it is super magical. It is, but, like, it's not... I don't know that it's split Balefire super magical. The power of not knowing limitations. Yeah. Well, Rand's just... It's because he's ignorant, not because he's, like, skilled. I choose not to recognize your reality. <laughs> and substitute my own. I've seen SAO abridged. Yeah, so he swings Kalendor, and the shockwave of the blade, like, slices through walls and pillars, because this is now, like, actually an anime. Yeah, the nice thing about Teleran Riyadh is you can have, like, big, bombastic, destructive anime battles without there being actual consequences. Yeah. Is Kalendor also a katana? Uh, almost definitely. <laughs> well, the cover of the book, of, like, the old cover, does not make it look like a katana. No. Well, they're also, like, with Eurocentric-looking, awful medieval fantasy illustrations. Uh, yeah. Jesse, are you referring to the Conan the Barbarian one? Yes. Okay. Awful, awful. Are you referencing that as, like, a counterexample? I mean- like, because it doesn't show as a katana in that, it must be a katana? <laughs> well, never mind. The wiki page of for Kalendor shows a more katana-looking sword. Okay, well, now I want to see it. Kalendor, yeah. I mean, that's what all of the Heron Marked Bleeds look like. And Kalendor is of a similar visual, as I understand it. Yeah, so 
suddenly like hundreds of shadow spawn attack Rand and he just burns them all to cinder with like no effort whatsoever. And with Kalendor, he can do anything. It's letting him draw so much of the power. He continues to pursue undoing and setting right the reality that Balsamon is twisting as they go through until they end up back in the heart. Balsamon is connected to like the literal darkness with these like tendrils and Rand cuts them off and then stabs him through the chest with the sword. I have done it, he thought. I have killed Baalzaman, killed Shaitan, I have won the last battle, and Rand is now three for three yeah. <laughs> on the endings of these books, being wrong. Yeah. Well, he's, he's like, okay, I did it this time, I swear. Like, yeah, this I've time he's it. right about killing him, but he's wrong about everything else. Yeah. He's also, I feel like after this book, A, the writing of the series completely changes, and B, like, or not the writing, but the scale and, like, he stops thinking that at the end of every book, which is great. I feel like he learned his lesson at this point. I'd find it really funny, though, for all 14 books. <laughs> at the end of every one. <laughs> I've done it. I've won the last battle. I've killed Shaitan. I can just imagine book 12, him yelling that, and everybody's like, Rand, stop. I'm gonna have to do this again now. They're like, you just wrote another book. Now we can't end the book because you said that. And like 14's the only one that ends with him not saying it. Anyway. Yeah, I think he says something about like, you are undone, you are destroyed. As he stabs him through with this like ephemeral crystal sword, which is very overwrought, but... Uh, it makes Tyler wiggle in excitement. I am in fact wiggling. Uh, so they return to reality, and Rand ends the fighting between the Aiel and the Defenders by proclaiming himself the Dragon Reborn. In a really dramatic way. Yeah. So dramatic. I am Rand Althor. I am the Dragon Reborn. Check out this lightning. So chapter 56, The People of the Dragon. Who's that? Who dis? I have dragon uh, tattoos. Who dis? Not yet. Well, Ruwag does. Oh, that's true. So men and women are weeping in the streets as the prophecy is fulfilled, because the next morning the Stone of Tear has fallen and the dragon banner flies over it. Is uh, this the banner that Moraine had pre-prepared? Yeah, because she's been carrying it the whole time. Well, she didn't <laughs> prepare it. They found it in the Eye of the World. I mean, yes, they found it in the Eye of the World, but she's been carrying it through this book. Like, they keep mentioning that she's got it with her stuff. Why Why was that funny? It's just really funny, like, that I mentioned that, just, like, her, like, being like, I gotta protect it, and then being like, finally, I can finally use it. I don't, well, they've used it in book two. I don't remember if the next one, if the next book has it, or if it's not until the fifth, but, like, they make more banners. It is not just the one banner through the entire series. The one banner is getting steadily worn out. Yeah. Down to, like, it, just a couple white threads flowing in the breeze. It's like, it's my banner, though. Uh, so Matt, the squad, Ruark, and Moraine are discussing matters the following morning. Uh, Moraine has found one of the seals, or she has one. Um, and it turns out the Aiel are the people of the dragon. <sighs> Who'd have thunk it? 
uh, we finally get confirmation that Baal Zaman is slash was not the Dark One. I thought that was implied from the beginning. Are you serious? Like after the first one and he came back in the second one and I was like, oh. We're looking at each other with the same blank look. Like, like, did, was that supposed to be a surprise? I mean, I had at Wait, least what? hope. Which, yeah, which component? Like, what are you thinking of this plot twist as saying? I'm trying to. It's just like, congrats, there's more nonsense you have to deal with. But, but like, what does it mean that this person that they've been talking to and has been calling himself Baal Zaman is not the same entity as the Dark One? Like, that's the twist, and that's what we're asking. There's another man behind the curtain. But it's not a man. <laughs> it's not a man. She, yeah. Like Moraine says, it's not a person. Like if yeah. the dark one was out and about, we'd be dead. So like this was just, this was a Shamael saying that he was Baal on the whole time. Wow, this uh, really failed to land. More like failed to land. Birds! Great. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I Honestly, this chapter was boring for me, so maybe I skimmed it more. I mean, when I came downstairs to tell you that it was time to record, you had this chapter open in Spark Notes. Oh yeah. my god. I just, you know, I wasn't really into it. I, I was kind of turned off after Rand did the whole announcement thing, and I, I mean, was like, this oh chapter god. is like seven pages long. Yeah. It was a long seven pages. I think it's just because you read everything all at once at the end. Anyway, what's important here is that Ishamael is dead. And so every time that everybody has been talking about Balsamon so far through this whole series, they've been talking about the guy. And every time they've mentioned that Balsamon has been doing nothing with his 3,000 years of freedom, they were talking about one of the Forsaken was free the entire time. Everything that he's done, everything that they mention about, like, oh, he's been manipulating the Aes Sedai. What have you done with, like manipulating the world um you know why do you keep coming back uh why are you fighting me and every time somebody says you are balsamon you are the dark one he's like some people call me balsamon <laughs> like literally the entire thing is yeah he he is not the dark one they have not faced the dark one they are they've like been fighting a just a forsaken that's been lying about who he is or like just has chose not to correct them up until now. This is not Madara. Anyway. So yes, they take the mask off of the Scooby-Doo villain and it was a Shamael the whole time. Which I just, it's so biblical. No, you're thinking of Ishmael. Sorry, that that's all that name makes me think of. Call me Ishmael. Don't mm. call me Balzaman. Anyway, a woman enters the room covered in hawk imagery. Birds. Delivering a message from an impressive woman who is clearly Lanfear. Uh, she is giving them Rand for safekeeping until she decides to take him back. You may have my boy protect him until I may retrieve him. Yeah. For my plans. Uh... So Matt is told that he's not allowed to leave because of the pattern. And as he's agreeing, like his dialogue agreeing is cut in with his internal monologue, wondering like, okay, I know how I'm going to get me out. I wonder if Tom's well enough to travel. Do you think I can get Perrin too? Like, it's just great. I love Matt. 
He's such an idiot. So we close the book on one of my favorite things that this series does, and I know for a fact that I thought about calling it out at the end of the second book, but I don't think that I actually did. Uh, but I might be repeating myself. What talking about how the general public reacts and talks about the events of the book? No. Um, like the very last thing that happens in the book is a written history of the event that just happened, but written from the next age. And so, like, uh, spoilers for the next, I don't know, 30 seconds for the end of the first adventure zone arc the second or third to last episode of that arc ends with the voiceover saying we already know you're going to win we just don't know how and this does the exact same thing of like if there's someone around to write history about how sick it was when rand was the dragon reborn it means that he wins we just don't know what happens between here and there and i think that that um I don't know. It lends it a lot of... <sighs> because you, as the reader, already know that Rand is going to win. Like, this 14-book series doesn't end with, and then Rand lost. I would actually like a book series. Well, the correction, I would not like a 14-book yeah, series. Exactly. Like I, I would be a very, very bitter reader if I read 14 books only to have that end. But in general, I do not mind endings like that because no, they're good. No, I think that's fine. Um, but I mean, yeah, like there's no, there are no illusions in this series that it's like good against evil and in the end, good is going to win. So I think that the text like subtextually calling that out and saying, we know that you know that he's going to win, but every time that we give a little like one paragraph history about something that Rand did. It's not presented as like, boy, it sure was sick when Jesus came down and saved us from Satan. It's like, boy, he sure did destroy the world. Like we just have to find out what he does between here and there and who lives and who dies. Who tells their story. Thank you. <laughs> um, for me, it kind of felt like, um, 80s style movies where it'll freeze on a shot. Oh my god. And then it'll just and then so and so went on to do this. I forget what movie it was but I recently watched one that did that and I started cackling out loud. On that like, note, they... we freeze frame and it's the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe the end of this episode of the podcast. <laughs> I presume that that will happen, yes. Um... Next yeah. book will be the next whatever. Wow. I'm going next to time. I'm going to be on a vacation that will take me into proximity of my other two hosts. <gasps> so yeah. we might For be like, taking a break and we might have an in-person mini so recording. Yes. What day is that gonna be? It could uh, be any day. But yeah, that was the Dragon Reborn. That book is better than the two before it. It got better. I think, like, on the whole, it's better. I prefer the climax to book two. Although, again, just because, like, I specifically am being targeted by the Perrin Fayil thing, <laughs> I'm very much forgiving of that. I think on the whole, this was an improvement over the second book. Yeah. And, B. hey, we're... 
I mean, I would be happy to read a side series about how wisdoms exist and Aesodai exist. Get hyped for the series to turn really boring and talk about minutia like that for a while. But is it going to talk about medicine and herbalism? I or is it going to so. talk about clothing and I think it talks about clothing and your where are you carrying your marriage dagger and does it hang between your breasts and how much ankle are you showing? Ugh. Yeah. On that note. And how long can we pal around Ibudar? <laughs> On that note, exactly. Um, but hey, the next book is like with the exception of two specific chapters good the entire time cool yeah jesse where can people find us so people can find us on our twitter at we are reading the link will be in the description and if you want to leave a review on itunes or tweet at us we love to hear from anyone who listens cool well um i've been tyler this is beyond and thank you and this will be jesse uh, bye. <laughs> bye. 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 Bye.